0: Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, better understanding the art of
1: lobbying. If someone comes up and wants to argue for better treatment for pets on behalf of the Humane Society, that's lobbying activity. If the Red Cross comes and wants to advocate for more federal funding for blood drives or different regulatory environments, that's lobbying
0: Lobbying is one of our region's largest industries, and it's one that causes our region more than a little discomfort. We're good at it, but perhaps at times embarrassed that we're good at it. Nevertheless, it's a big part of our local economy and how many of us spend at least part of our workday. I thought that today we'd have a successful lobbyist and business owner join us to talk about his career and how lobbying is important to our economy and why perhaps we should be prouder of our community's engagement in these activities. Here in the studio is Alex Vogel. He is the chief executive officer of the Vogel Group, a business that he established after a career in lobbying and politics. He's very much a Washington insider who's inside our studio today. Alex, thanks for
1: joining us. Thanks for having me. What do you do at Vogel Group? So we're a government affairs consulting firm. Uh, For most people, a lot of that work means lobbying. Um, It's one of the fascinating things about this issue is the definition of lobbying. As you rightly indicate, we're at best ambivalent, and a lot of people have a negative view of that word. Uh, The truth is... Uh, lobbying is the most core First Amendment activity that we have. It is going to government to, to address your grievances. It was specifically uh, the idea behind, uh, behind the First Amendment and uh, I think a really important way for people and organizations to interact with government.
0: You know, yay, verily, we go back in history to the Roman Republic and forward through the Florentines and, and elsewhere – Lobbying has always
1: been part of the tapestry of politics. It has people as long as there's been recorded history have wanted to influence the institutions that that control and run their lives, uh, and that's no different today.
0: Do you think that it's uh, what's happened is lobbying and?
1: Citizens United and money, and it's all gotten conflated so that we've sort of lost our way a bit? It it has gotten conflated, and unfortunately, a lot of that is based on misconceptions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reality is that, from a legal perspective, and I got into this business, frankly, because I started my career as a a lawyer working on political issues, and a lot of that was First Amendment related. I happen to believe, even as a a factual matter, uh, the issue is not too much money in politics. We spend a lot more on uh, Halloween candy every year than we do on uh, the greatest democracy in the world. That includes all political spending. Um, so I, but because a lot of that conversation is driven around money and politics and tends to focus on the corporate side, what I think gets lost is the idea that, first of all, one man's freedom fighter is another man's uh, rebel. Lobbying encompasses every piece of advocacy that goes on. So if someone comes up and wants to argue for better treatment for pets – on behalf of the Humane Society, that's lobbying activity. If the Red Cross comes and wants to advocate for more federal funding for blood drives or different regulatory environments, that's lobbying. Um, and so, uh, because most of the conversation tends to focus around uh, large corporate activity, people assume that it is somehow dominant in that marketplace, which I don't think is the case. So, in effect, as our societies become more politicized,
0: there's a need for more lobbyists the more lobbying occurs. So people get a sense, and lobbyists
1: are in the middle of this cyclotron of, is that what you're seeing? Well, the other reality is because a lot of our national conversation has become extremely polarized and partisan, people assume that that somehow directly relates to lobbying activity. Both my experience, and I think most of the people who lobby on behalf of individuals, institutions, and organizations, policy is not partisan. Um, They are trying to affect change uh, in government outcome or behavior or structure, they are not trying to make sure that one party or the other wins an election. Those are very different things. Uh, but for reasons of uh, probably better marketing, political consultants uh, have a better rap than lobbyists these days. <laughs> in your life,
0: you've been in politics. You have been involved in it in various different ways. And now you're uh,
1: you're lobbying. What do you think the biggest difference is between the two? Um. I- I have been on the, as you said, the political side of the equation. I came up through the uh, the then, in my view, much stronger political party system uh, when parties exercised a lot more control. Uh, I went on to the official side and worked in government directly and have been on this side. All of them taught me valuable things about the way government works and the way government makes decisions and how to try and influence those decisions. Uh, the biggest difference uh, is, and this is especially true in the context of political parties. When I worked for the Republican National Committee, all I cared about was that people with R's in front of their name won an election. I didn't care if you were uh, a liberal Republican from upstate New York or a conservative Republican from Alabama, that was all I cared about. Um, That drives by definition a big tent agenda, uh, which I think is constructive. Um, On the, the lobbying side, Uh, depending on who you're advocating for, almost by definition, your interests are much narrower. And again, frankly, devoid of the partisan piece. Uh, It's not that there are, uh, yes, there are lots of lobbyists who had careers in democratic politics or republican politics, but their goal, their job is to advocate for their clients who aren't political parties, who aren't candidates. They're either organizations, individuals, institutions, some of them corporate, Again, they don't care whether you have an R in front of your name, a D, an I. What they care about uh, is the issues that are affecting their institution or the causes they care about. And and that distinction is really the, the biggest one.
0: Now, I'm a, I'm a lawyer as well, and uh, it does seem to me that, therefore, it's not surprising that lawyers become lobbyists because lawyers have an ethical duty as part of our license to advocate for our clients. It's not our job to decide whether or not – we can't help a client create a fraud or a crime, but – it's not our job to figure out whether or not the client's point of view has legitimacy. It's our view to
1: advocate. Do you think that's why so many lawyers become lobbyists? You know, I think that connection between the legal industry in Washington, and you're right, a lot of, as am I, a lot of lobbyists are lawyers. Um, and I think the real driver for that is um, that both the, the practice of law, especially in the government context, and the regulatory context, drives the experience that is critical for people uh, if they're going to be in the lobbying side. What's fascinating is, and you alluded to this, there is a, uh, a, a practice-mandated legal structure around the legal industry that imposes certain obligations uh, in terms of behavior. Uh, it's fascinating. Those don't exist on the lobbying side. And one of the, the really eye-opening moments for me when I first opened a lobbying firm uh, back uh, a long time ago now uh, was we went to our insurer uh, and, and got insurance. Uh, for the business. And they said, well, what about professional uh, liability insurance? I said, "Mm, great, happy to talk about that. Um, Obviously, at a law firm, you have professional liability insurance related to the practice of law. There are certain standards related to conflicts and client behavior, et cetera. The insurance agent came back and said, there's no such policy. We can't get one written. I said, well, why not? And they said, there's no standard of care to be a lobbyist. Um, Now, as a practical matter, if you're going to be successful in this business, um, all you have just as a lawyer is your reputation and your behavior. You're obligated to meet a standard of care to serve your clients appropriately. But it is fascinating that from a regulatory and societal perspective, we don't impose that uh, on, on lobbying as we do on lawyers. I think maybe, and you alluded to it earlier, it's the First Amendment issue. It is, and that's why recently in the news there's been a lot of discussion about uh, a presidential candidate proposing a tax on lobbying. Um, And my reaction to it uh, was on the First Amendment side uh, is that is the most egregious violation of the First Amendment ever. As it is, federal lobbying and many states as well impose disclosure requirements on lobbying behavior. I can make an argument that that alone uh, is an unfair restriction on free speech. Some of those have been challenged. Some of them haven't. Um, But the idea that you would tax it explicitly uh, because uh, you believe there's too much lobbying going on, that's a restraint on speech. Um, So, I
0: I think that uh, here in the region, you know, we don't spend enough time celebrating entrepreneurial behavior in the context of lobbying or consulting, even though – we lead the nation in new business formation because of those. You're an entrepreneur. You started your own company. How do you describe what you're doing to people? And, and how, I mean, do you do you feel the same as a startup
1: entrepreneur or somebody starting a, a restaurant? I do, and it's interesting. Most people, uh, if you meet them on an airplane and they say, "Oh, what do you do?" and you say, "I'm a lobbyist," they have a predetermined idea about what that is. The truth is, the lobbying industry, and this is true for those of us who we're entrepreneurial in that context, is is very broad. Um, uh, I prefer government affairs consulting uh, to lobbying, not to get away from the moniker, uh, which I proudly embrace, uh, but because I think it more accurately describes the range of things that that people like uh, myself and the Vogel Group do, which some of it is disclosed lobbying under the rules that apply. A lot of it is much more... uh, innovative business consulting that happens to really focus on the government space. Uh, But I think there has been a tremendous amount of innovation um, in the industry just in the time that I've been involved. A lot of that driven by, yes, some changes in government, but more broadly changes in technology, the use of data, um, the various communications tools that people have now. Uh, And so I do think that we should do more frankly, to celebrate and acknowledge the innovation that goes on in the space. Washington and lobbying is not a bunch of smoke-filled rooms um, as it probably once was. Um, and I think some really interesting things are happening.
0: So I guess it's fair to say if uh, somebody's listening and thinking about a career in this industry, you wouldn't dissuade them.
1: I wouldn't. I think it's a wonderful thing to do uh, both from a societal perspective and from a business perspective Uh, In an interesting perspective. I meet a lot of people who, and especially young people, who say, I'd like to do this, how do I do it? Um, And what's interesting is, uh, what I used to always say to people is, great, go have a career in government, learn how government actually works, and then you can apply those skills and knowledge uh, to this sector. Uh, The truth is, there are a lot of people who didn't work in government, um, and more and more, I think the ability to understand our clients' businesses And what's really driving those businesses is equally as important as whether or not you were ever in government. Effectively, advocacy has become become sales, it sounds like. There is definitely a large part of that. Well, I really
0: appreciate having an opportunity to hear an entrepreneur's perspective on an underappreciated industry and how lobbying fits in. Alex Vogel is Chief Executive Officer of the Vogel Group. Alex, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. And now, What the Fed
2: with technologist John Cofrancesco. As you know, most government IT projects fail. And even the ones we call successes, those look like failures too. The problem is most IT acquisitions are a lot less about buying and a lot more about a marriage. You're basically proposing to your vendor and vice versa. So you have to live with that person, that organization, or that system for some time. Sometimes that dream date you find out later is cutting their toenails on your bed. So you really don't want to find out that the devil's in the details too late. This is the problem that Courtney Anderson and Lisa Haralampus of the National Archives and Records Administration wanted to solve. They understood that federal records managers, they only get funding once every 10 years or so and didn't have the organic capability to go out to buy these new systems. They didn't know what to buy, who to buy from, where to buy it. So they did something really interesting. They partnered with the GSA to form a standalone schedule, the GSA 36, a one-stop shop to solve this wild west world of acquisition so that records managers could buy from a single place. But more than that, they didn't just build a schedule for you to contract through. They also formed a standard called FERMI, the Federal Electronic Records Management Modernization Initiative. And this standard went out to the market to tell vendors what they had to do in order to be a good federal records management system. So end-to-end, the users have this ability to go to the GSA 36, find the right vendors to be sure that those vendors have the right capabilities. And if they need to, to skip their own contracting and to purchase directly through the GSA. So if you have a problem like this, build a community of practice like Courtney and Lisa. Work with your partners at GSA and other agencies. And if you're a records manager, check out the GSA 36. That was What the Fed with
0: technologist John Cofrancesco. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, the Sunbathers and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout-out to Marymount University's School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And, of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sail Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.